All right. Well, let's uh, let's open to Ephesians, and we need to pray. I would like to pray again uh, for this time in the Word. This is a hard section of Scripture to teach uh, because it's so full of uh, lots of different things. And so uh, let's pray together that uh, God would give us understanding and insight. Father, we ask you to come and anoint the reading of your word. Lord, anoint us as hearers of your word, uh, that we would um, hear your Holy Spirit in the word. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ephesians 1. This, uh, so we're going to be in Ephesians for the next six weeks. You all know that. And uh, so we have quite a bit of time to kind of slow down and take our time uh, walking through this book. And this is a perfect book to slow down and walk through slowly. Um, I hope most of you know, but it, just in case you don't, the, uh, the broad overview of Ephesians is really just two parts. There's chapters 1 through 3, which talk about the truth of the gospel. Uh, Paul expounds on the truth of the gospel and everything that that means of Jesus the Messiah. The truth of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. And by gospel, I mean the good news of what he did, who he is, what he means within the purposes of God, all these things about who Jesus is and what that means for uh, his church, his saints. And then chapters 4 through 6 are, they, they make a, a pretty clear shift into how to walk out, uh, how, to, how to live in light of the truth of the gospel as the body of Jesus, the Messiah, as his people, as his, his, uh, his actual body in the earth. And uh, similarly, the, the outline of chapter 1 is fairly straightforward. Um, not that the contents of the outline are straightforward, just the outline itself. The first, uh, well, you have a two-verse introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to spend a lot of time there on the intro, uh, but you've got that intro. Then you have... Uh, the first paragraph, uh, it's really one big sentence in Greek, and it's uh, verses 3 through 14, and that is one long praise. Uh, it's, it's almost like a, a psalm or a hymn that Paul speaks, and it contains lots of one-liner nuggets of big truths about who Jesus is and God's purposes that he's accomplished in Christ. Uh, but it's, it, it's all wrapped up in a praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, etc., etc., etc. So verses 3 through 14 are one big exclamation, declaration of praise. And then the rest of the chapter is, one, uh, is a prayer that Paul prays for his readers, uh, the, the saints in the church. So... Let's look at both. Let's just look at those two sections, and then, as I as I said, uh, we're going to come back and take a closer look at how the Holy Spirit is uh, talked about in this chapter. And we'll do that in each chapter. We'll kind of wrap up 
or walk through the chapter by a closer look at the Holy Spirit. Um, so in the intro, and this is typical of Paul, he, he names himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And the will of God is mentioned a couple times in chapter 1. And it's important, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll talk about the will of God in a little while. But Paul is saying that he is an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. Uh, so much about who Jesus is, is a summary and a, and a full expression of the will of God. And then we can incorporate it into that. And so Paul is identifying himself as being incorporated into the purposes of God in Jesus Christ, namely as an apostle. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, and a lot of people will point out if you read any kind of uh, commentary on this, that um, the in Ephesus phrase um, is, doesn't, it doesn't really appear in the earliest manuscripts that we have. And the conclusion there is likely that this was not just to the churches in Ephesus. Uh, it was meant to be sort of a, a circular letter. And one of the reasons people say that is that there's, there's very little in the way of kind of the, the, the typical personal greetings um, that, that Paul ends his letters with. He does mention uh, Tychicus, who's going to bring this letter uh, and pass it around. Um, but this was likely meant to be a letter that was read in all the churches in that area. And even if it didn't have, uh, e even if the, the in Ephesus is supposed to be there and was originally there, uh, we could still say with some certainty that this was meant to be read aloud amongst uh, the whole group of churches there. Uh, same thing in the end of Colossians. He says, see that you read this letter uh, all over, and you also read the letter that I wrote uh, to Laodicea. And so letters were floating around. Paul was, as we looked at last week, he was equipping the churches in that area to, 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 walk, uh, to walk out the gospel of Jesus together. Um, okay, so then we get into this long sentence. And it really helps to read, and I'm going to give you some sections in, in some of, uh, as we go through, I'm going to give you some sections to read elsewhere in Paul's letters that uh, can kind of flesh out what some of these things that he's referring to in his big declaration of praise, some of the things that he's referring to in a way that helps us understand, because he's really just like a machine gun here. Uh, I mean, he, he is blessing God for this, 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 and this, and this, and it, it, all of these, these thoughts are, are related in the way that he expresses them. And sometimes it can be difficult to figure out what goes with which and um, who is the in whom that we're talking about. Um, so sometimes it helps to read uh, passages elsewhere in Paul where he's talking about the same thing, but he's fleshing it out a little more. I'll, we'll look at a couple of those as we go through. Um, but this big run-on sentence is pretty clearly uh, has three parts. And uh, each of those parts is sort of marked off by the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. And you can look at the three parts as the first one is about the Father, the second one is about the Son, the third one is about the Holy Spirit. You can also look at them as the first one has to do with the past, the second one has to do with the present, and the third one has to do with the future. Um, there's a number of ways that you could kind of label those different parts of the outline. Um, but it's pretty clear that he is trying to describe what God has always been about, 
what Jesus Christ has now accomplished and that what that means moving forward, uh, all in the form of praising God for all of those things. Again, it's punctuated by to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. So this is a, this is a declaration of praise uh, to God. Which is why it's not, uh, it's not very systematic in the way that it talks about things. He's overflowing with praise to God. And this is everything that's inside of him coming out in one big jumble. All right. Um, okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right there, he's, he's addressing God, but he's including Jesus Christ. Okay. And that's important because Ephesians was written to a, an audience that, was, that consisted of Jew, both Jews and Gentiles. And you, you, can, you can never underestimate that when you're reading through Paul. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was absolutely steeped in the story of the Old Testament, the hopes of Israel, the prophetic writings, uh, the law, everything. He was... He was a, a, a scholar's scholar of all of those things. And God got a hold of him and said, go and preach to the Gentiles. And uh, everything that he had spent his life learning suddenly made sense in light of who Jesus was. Okay, And so he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God and Lord... Uh, are both ways that Israel Israelites would have addressed God. Uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Uh, the, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. Okay? Uh, so God and Lord were both addressed to Yahweh, to the one God. And here he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in other words, he's addressing both of those as the God of Israel, who has blessed us in Christ. And we need to, to remember that, that Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. Okay, Messiah, and particularly here, I think it's important that it's not just Jesus' last name. Messiah was a... a uh, person and a longing of Israel, uh, Paul would have studied Messiah. He would have had debates. There were lots of different um, schools of thought about what Messiah was and who he was and where he might come from. Uh, these were all expectations within Israel at this point. Uh, but he is calling Jesus the Messiah, and that's really what his message was uh, as he went out on his missionary journeys. He would go to the synagogue, he would preach Jesus as the Messiah. Hey, all this stuff that we read in the Torah, this is him. This is the one. So he has blessed us in Messiah with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, we need to think, it, it's, it's easy to get confused. What does that mean? That he was thinking of me in the foundation of the world? I don't know how to answer that. But what I do know how to answer is that the idea of being elect, which is what this word is, the chosen, it's, it's being elect, elect in him before the foundation of the world and being blessed 
are uh, covenantal words. God chose Abraham and blessed him. Israel very clearly and in no uncertain terms understood itself as the elect nation of God, the royal priesthood, the chosen people. Okay, so Paul is saying we have been elect in Christ. We all are elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. The real election happened before the world even existed. It happened even before Adam. And it happened when God and Jesus shared relationship with each other before the foundation of the world. They had fellowship with each other. You can read 1 John, the opening of 1 John, to read a little more about this. They had fellowship with each other and said, let us make man in our image. And before the foundation of the world, God the Father said, this is how it should be. This is how it should be. And so the, the, the election of Abraham, the election of Israel, was just a shadow of that original election, which was God choosing Christ. Yes, this is my son. And this, this election gets, uh, gets echoed all through Scripture. Okay? Um, so, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, I need to get down to according to the purpose of his will. Okay, now this is where I love the ESV, but this is where the ESV really, I don't understand why it, why it goes the direction that it goes, because the word, and the King James gets it right, and many other translations do, it's according to the good pleasure of his will. According to the good pleasure of his will. So we were chosen in him to be holy and blameless before him uh, and to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And it was according to the good pleasure of the will of God. And it's so important, I think, to, to, to understand that that good pleasure, what that good pleasure means, because it's the same thing that, that God speaks over Jesus at his baptism and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the good pleasure. That's the same thing that's talked about here. The father looked down and said, this is what I chose before the foundation of the world. And this is now that he is in the flesh, now that he has come, I choose him and I am well pleased in him. This is it. It's the father saying, yes, this is what it's supposed to be like to Jesus. Okay, it's the father vindicating Jesus. And so that's what this is. That's what this first part is about: is the father's relationship and love for his son. And the father loves nothing more. Nothing gives the father greater pleasure than to lift up his son and say, "Yes, this is uh, this is him. This is the one in whom I am well pleased." God's pleasure in his son is in his son, and it always has been. And God will always get the most excited about Jesus. Uh, but also, God is pleased in the way that the Son lays down his life. Okay, God is pleased in the shape of Jesus' life. 
because uh, in 1 Corinthians it says that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Okay, God chose what is foolish in the world to confound the wise. This is the mystery, okay? And this is the, this is the aspect of the calling and election that Israel never quite understood and what Jesus had to come and clarify. No, here's what election looks like. It means being chosen, blessed by God, to be a blessing, to be sent to lay down our life, to die so that people could, could receive the grace of God. And that's what God chose, and that's what, that's what the good pleasure of God's will is. It's Jesus, his son, but it's the way Jesus lays his life down. All right? And so as we move on, it says, according to the purpose, to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is my beloved son. In whom we have redemption through his blood. So if we, we, we talk about the, we, we get all the way down to the beloved, and then it says, and we have redemption through his blood by the way that he laid down his life. The forgiveness of our trespasses, which was the hope of Israel, which was the sign of the new covenant to come, the forgiveness of sins. Over and over in the prophets, it says, the days are coming when I will forgive their sins. In Psalms, it says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. That's the real blessing. In Acts, it says, God sent him to you first to bless every one of you by turning you from your sins and and offering you repentance and forgiveness. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Um, Okay, so... I'm going to keep going here in a second. I've got to make sure I, I say a couple things. So election. Election is very important. But when you read about election in Paul, don't get confused and start thinking about uh, who's going to be saved and who's not. Usually Paul is talking about, when he's talking about election, he's talking about Israel's unique status as the people of God chosen to be blessed, but chosen to be blessed for the sake of the of the nations, for the Gentiles. So Abraham was chosen and blessed to be a blessing to the nation, and this is the calling of Israel. Okay, that's another important word, the calling. The election and the calling. That is the choosing of Israel and the mission that Israel was given. The election and the calling. Uh, in this language, they, they often appear together, election and calling. In Second Peter, it says, make every effort to make your calling and election sure okay election means that you are a part of the people of god that he is using to bring redemption into the earth and the calling is the way that that redemption comes about so the calling of israel was to be the answer of man to be the answer to mankind's rebellion to undo the effects of sin to somehow deal with the evil that had come into the world through mankind's rebellion against God. But they continually misunderstood or failed to live up to their calling because of their hardness of heart. Um, And this is what Jesus comes to undo and to fulfill the election and the calling of Israel. Okay, Uh, their very first lesson, right, he chose Abraham, 
he made them a great nation. They, they, they go down into Egypt because of the famine, and they become a great nation. But they're in bondage. And the very first thing that God teaches them as a nation is that he's able to bring them out of bondage. And that he is able to triumph over the powers of the world. Okay, that's, that's, that was how they were born as a nation, by being brought out of Egypt, uh, out of bondage. Okay, but we, we see that they didn't really understand their calling. They kind of understood their election, hey, we're chosen by God. But their calling never quite crystallized for them until Christ came. There were little glimpses of it. Um, so I want to read Luke 24, because Jesus himself clarifies uh, what the whole Old Testament was about and what the calling of Israel was about. Uh, verse 25. And he said to them, this is on the, on the walk to Emmaus, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Isn't this the whole point of the story? That Messiah, that Israel, the calling of Israel is to suffer and to be raised. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later on he says, These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now here is Jesus' Jesus's own summary of the Old Testament. Thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's it. That is the summary of the Old Testament. That there is this man named Messiah or he, he is the Messiah which really just means anointed king that, that the Messiah the anointed king is actually going to suffer. And it's through that suffering somehow that he's going to be raised and then all nations will be blessed. So Israel kind of knew about this, this Messiah and Israel kind of knew about their election, but they never really put together that what it meant was to, to actually suffer on behalf of the sins of the world so that forgiveness could come forth into the earth. They never put that together. And Jesus, and this was the wisdom of God's purpose, Jesus was the one who had finally had to come and reveal the fullness of, it says, the mystery, which was hidden for ages, but has now been revealed. Which brings us back to uh, verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which is that word again, according to his good pleasure. Okay, It was the good pleasure of God in some way that they, were, that they didn't get this, that they didn't understand it. This word is also used in Mark when Jesus prays. He says, thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to infants. 
for such was your good pleasure. Why is it God's good pleasure that the wise wouldn't be able to grasp it, that the, that the heart of heart, the foolish, the slow to believe everything that was written, that they wouldn't really understand it? It was so that Jesus could be exalted. It was so that when he came and when he suffered and died, and when the Jews thought it was foolishness, and the, or the, the Greeks thought it was foolishness, and the Jews didn't, didn't understand it, when the stone that the builders rejected became this cornerstone, God would say, see, isn't he great? This is what he's always done. This is who he's always been. And now he's been revealed. And this is, this is God's good pleasure. And you don't understand it if you're of the flesh. You don't understand it if you have pride. You don't understand it if you seek for the glory of men. But it's God's good pleasure that the humble in heart would see it and know it. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now here's the plan. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now you can't really say it more strongly than that. All things. And that word unite, um, it, it's a big word that, that no one really knows how to translate fully. Okay, it's actually, a, a, like even just in Greek, it's a really long word. It's like eight syllables long. It's a, it's, a, it's a big deal. It contains lots of stuff. All right. Um, here's some of the things I think are included in this word. Uh, I'm going to try and pronounce it. Anakephaliosasthai. That's what it means to sum up everything in Christ. Anakephaliosasthai. That's all one word to unite, to sum up, to bring together, in, to, to head up all things in Christ. What, what is brought in, together in Christ? It's Israel's calling and election are brought together in the fullness of Christ, right? Jesus represents, he becomes the representative, Messiah represents Israel. All of Israel is incorporated into Jesus, okay? And so the calling and the election are all fulfilled in Jesus. He, he did two things. He, he bore the sins of the earth, right? In him all sin was, was placed and dealt with, okay? That was part of Israel's calling that they didn't understand. That the way that we deal with the sins of the world is we actually take them on and we bear the wrath of God on behalf of the world so that he can extend mercy. That went over their heads. But then the other thing that he did was that he said, all right, so all of what God has always been looking for in his elect is in Christ. That means that everyone that's in Christ fulfills all the calling that, that, that mankind has always, that, that God has always wanted to, to accomplish in mankind, the thing that he chose before the foundation of the world in Christ. So the things that are united in Christ, Israel's Israel's calling an election. Jews and Gentiles, right now, and, and he, he fleshes this out a little later, there's no longer a chosen nation and then the, the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, he, he made out of two, one new man. Okay? So the, there's no more wall between God's chosen and the Gentiles. 
they are all one in Messiah because he has united all things in him. Uh, and then he says, heaven and earth have been united, right? There's no longer this separation. Eden was heaven on earth, and God walked with man, and man's sin caused a rift between heaven and earth. And now, in Jesus, because he is the, the man of God come down to, to earth, uh, that heaven and earth are once again one. And as we are in him, heaven and earth are united in us. Everything is in Jesus. It's all summed up in Jesus, okay? Uh, and then we move on in, in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And this actually gets back to the whole idea of adoption, okay? God always wanted to adopt he always wanted sons in the image of Jesus. That was always the plan before the foundation of the world. Sons in the image of Jesus. That's why he created mankind. Um, and he was always, it was always to be, uh, we were always to be in fellowship with him as his sons. All right? Um, and part of that is to have an inheritance. Right? Adam was given an inheritance. His inheritance was the earth. Um, but he squandered that inheritance. Um, and so the idea of adoption is not really the modern day. See, we, we look at adoption and we go, oh, we've been, someone had pity on us and welcomed us into their family. And so now we belong to the family of God. And certainly that's part of adoption. But the other part of adoption in the ancient world is that it was, it was kind of a royal thing, that, that a king who didn't have a natural heir would adopt a son, and you have now full legal right to that family name. Um, and so the adoption as sons includes an inheritance, okay? Um, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, and this could either be we that believed and then brought the gospel to you, or we Jews who were the first to hope in Messiah uh, might be the praise of his glory, and then you also Gentiles. Um, I think both ways are that there's something to be said for each of those. But you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that at the end. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? I'm going to zoom in there in a second when we come back to look at the Spirit. So, he describes the work of the Father before the foundation of the world, but in the fullness of time sending forth his Son. And then what that means now going forward, he has summed up everything in Christ and so that now all who are in him are everything that God has always been looking for. And we can now live in the way that he created, in the way that he chose us to live, holy and blameless. He, we can now live in that way if we are in Christ. Okay, for this reason, he says, verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and that's literally the hope of his calling. What is the hope of his calling? What is the hope of his calling? Okay? It's one calling, and it's the calling that's always been there. It's the calling that Israel failed to live up to, but that, that Jesus fulfilled. And it's the calling to, through our life, through the way that we lay down our lives, bring the blessing of God into the earth and, and offer people uh, membership in his family and forgiveness of sins. So the hope of his calling is the, is the hope that Jesus had as he laid down his life so that others could live. It's the hope of the resurrection. It's it, the hope of his calling. What is his calling? It's suffering and resurrection. And he says, you need to know that there is hope in your calling. That suffering is part of the plan. That the fellowship of his suffering, as he, would, as he says in Romans, and the power of his resurrection... That is the hope of his calling, his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you would know what the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Um, we've obtained an inheritance. This is, we, we just talked all about the, the allotments for the tribes of Israel, that there is a, there is a uh, kingdom that's been given to, to the sons of God, and we have an inheritance in him. And then it says, and that we would know what the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this is, this is the triumph of the Messiah, of the King of Israel. Uh, this is the, the triumph of uh, Yahweh over Pharaoh. Jesus has triumphed over the last enemy. How do we know? What, how powerful is he? He is more powerful than the final enemy facing mankind, which was death. And so the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the ultimate power. Um, and that you would know the greatness of his power towards us, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Messiah when he raised him from the dead. That the resurrection of Christ was the ultimate display of the triumph of Yahweh over the powers of darkness. And in Paul's mind, right, you think, of the, you think of the most dramatic triumphs of Yahweh over the powers of evil. You think of the Exodus. You think of the fire that came down from heaven on the prophets of Baal. Uh, this is the power that, that God displayed as he raised Jesus from the dead. All right, so you have his praise for all the great and mighty purposes of God that he has realized in Christ. And then he has a prayer that 
really it's a prayer that he would understand the thing that he just praised God for. <laughs> he says, this is, the, you can't really know this unless the Spirit comes in and reveals it to you, okay? So uh, let's take a closer look at the Holy Spirit in here. So there's, there's two places, primary places, where the, the Holy Spirit is mentioned here in chapter 1. The first is as a seal. It's the seal that we receive, and it's the down payment on our inheritance. This is the first thing that the Spirit uh, works in us, according to Paul here in Ephesians. And so I want to read a couple passages that echo this. Uh, the first one's in Galatians 4. You can probably just turn backwards one page in your Bible, and you'll probably be very close, a page or two. So the Spirit here is closely related to sonship and adoption and inheritance. Okay, He's the seal of our adoption. You could almost say that the Holy Spirit, he's saying, is the legal proof that we've been adopted and that we have a right to the family inheritance. That's what the Holy Spirit is for us. Uh, Galatians 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir... As long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So do you see how closely associated the Holy Spirit is with the, uh, the idea of adoption and sonship? The Holy Spirit comes to seal our adoption, to legally ratify it. You could almost say it's like the notary seal on us that we've been adopted as the sons of God and that we fully belong and that we have full right. And that's an amazing thing, that that's what the Holy Spirit is. Uh, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit as the Son of God and as a full legal heir. Uh, the, another one in which these ideas are really closely related is Romans 8. And we, well, I don't have time to read the whole chapter. I'll just read uh, the part that kind of echoes what we just read. Uh, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Um, so, well, let me finish. Uh, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the adoption of, the, uh, the, the spirit of adoption as sons. So, I, I don't know if you ever noticed how closely associated the spirit is with the adoption as sons, which was what God predestined before the foundation of the earth to adopt us as sons in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is the means, it's the agency by which we are adopted as sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now listen, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Provided we understand the calling, what it means to be a son of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? It means to suffer and be raised. That is what the son, that's what God knew about Jesus. That's what pleased God about Jesus before the foundation of the world, that he would leave and he would suffer to offer grace. God knew that about Jesus before the foundation of the world. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so, those who become sons of God do so by the Spirit, by adoption. But what we're adopted into is that same calling, that same inheritance. Part of the inheritance is suffering, but part of the inheritance is resurrection and glory. Uh, and both work in the life of Jesus, the Son of God. So, the first place that we see the Holy Spirit is that the, the Holy Spirit is how we become sons of God and how we know we are sons of God. It is the spirit of adoption. Uh, and it is, uh, the you can't have God without, you can't have the Father without the Son, and you can't have the Son without the Spirit of the Son. And they all work together. And you can call that the Trinity, or you can call it whatever you want, but it's an amazing thing to see. And it's what Paul is communicating here in Ephesians 1. The Spirit is how we become sons of God. The Spirit is the legal proof, the notary seal on our adoption. Uh, it's, in, it's our entitlement as heirs. But it's also our proof and our, our guarantee of suffering. Then the second thing we see, the Holy Spirit, is in the prayer that Paul prays. That the Spirit, that he may give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him. So the Spirit is actually the substance of our sonship, our adoption. But the Spirit is also the way that we grasp the work of God in and through us. It's the way we understand what God is like. It's the way we understand the mystery. You can't understand the ways of God. They're going to be foolishness or weakness to you unless you have the Spirit. And you can read about this in 1 Corinthians in the opening chapters, that it pleased God that he's not He's not going to come display strength, and he's not going to come and, and dazzle with wisdom. He's going to come and suffer and die. And if you are spiritual, you understand those truths. But not unless you're spiritual. If you are not truly of the Spirit, you will eventually turn away from the way of God. It will, it will become weakness to you, or it will become foolishness to you. And so the Holy Spirit, this is why Paul prays, you may grasp this with your head, but you need the Holy Spirit to really understand it. Because once you start to walk out the calling of God, you're going to wonder. You're going to wonder unless you have the Spirit and you know 
aha, this was the mystery hidden for ages. This is what the whole Old Testament points to, that the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God is dealing with the evil in the, in the world, through, that he must suffer and then be raised. And unless you have the Spirit, you're going to be like those disciples on Emmaus, where Jesus says, oh, foolish ones, slow to believe everything written in the prophets. You're not going to grasp it. So Paul is praying that they'd have the Spirit to grasp their identity and their purpose, their calling as the sons of God. So there you go. And what two, the two great truths about the Holy Spirit here, that it's the spirit of adoption, it's the spirit of sonship that cries, Abba, Father. But that cry of Abba, Father, if you read it in Scripture, is the same cry that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, take this cup from me, if there's any other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the spirit of adoption in him. That's the spirit of, of the Son saying, Yes, Father, I will. And that is what brings God good pleasure. And that was, that's what he has chosen from the foundation of the world. Um, so there we go. And that's, I've been praying all day that, that the way that I communicate this and the way that we dig into it, it can really make sense. But here's the thing. I, I can't do it. I can't do it for you. I can't explain it for you. We've got some words here. But even Paul himself, in the middle of explaining it, in the middle of praising God for it, has to pray that it would be a spiritual work that happens so that the people of God could understand who they really are in Jesus, in the Messiah. Um, and so I think it would be good to just stop now and pray uh, and... Uh, and do some praying, do some more praying. And chapter 2 is going to do some more praying through this week as we continue to go through this book. Um, chapter 2 is going to continue some of these thoughts and uh, bring some new angles to them. So let's pray, and then it's probably a good time to just uh, uh, stop. And if anyone has any questions or if you need any clarification, uh, feel free to ask. Um, but we'll just pray. And we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that, and uh, and then we can go on with it. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for uh, this letter and for your apostle Paul, that was your apostle by your will. And uh, Lord, we want to um, be united with this truth by the Holy Spirit. We want to understand the deep things of the Holy Spirit, Lord, not. Uh, not in an intellectual way, but, Lord, in a deeply spiritual way, in, in, in a way that the, the heart of a true son understands what his father's about. Lord, we want to understand what you are about by the Holy Spirit. And we know, Lord, that you send the spirit of your son into our hearts, and then we get it. We understand. We, we cry, Abba, Father, in obedience and, and, and yielding to you. And so, Lord, we desire that. We desire for the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened so that we would know our calling, God. We would know our inheritance, and we would know the power of the resurrection. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.